Wonderful. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Take your seats. As you do, let me pray before we uh, get into this last part of Luke together. Father God, thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to come back to your word every single Sunday, every day. Heavenly Father, I pray very much that we will be a church in which the word of God dwells among us richly, that we will be people who take the things that we hear to heart, that our consciences will be pricked and our spirits will be stirred and our bodies and wills will be made to move and act for your glory and for our good. Father God, thank you for what we look at today, this kingdom of wonderful growth. Lord, we pray that we will be strongly encouraged by what this passage has to say to us through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the inspiration of the Spirit and through your servant Luke. And may we go away from here emboldened and encouraged in the gospel we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, uh, here we are at the very end of this series in Luke. And if Luke's material has done its job on us, and I really hope it has, then by now, after having walked through the lessons in this school of discipleship of Jesus, seeing how we live and act and behave and follow Jesus in a difficult world as distinctive kingdom disciples, if Luke's material has done its job on us, then we should want the kingdom of God. We should want the kingdom that belongs to this Jesus so very badly. Jesus is so good and his kingdom is so good. Last week, remember, look at verse 17, if you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Look at what this kingdom does to people. All Jesus' adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. The people rejoiced because it was so very evident to them. We are being made certain of the fact that this is the kingdom of freedom that rescues from every kind of prison that we've been looking at. Sickness addiction, uh, oppression by others, even sin and death. Jesus, your kingdom come, we are taught to pray. And that is now the prayer that we want to pray. So just imagine Theophilus, in light of all this, the original recipient of this well-ordered account written by Luke. Imagine him one last time in this part of Luke's account, and imagine that Theophilus is nearly convinced He's ready to sign on to the hard but exciting life of proclaiming the kingdom, but he has one last question. Are you sure that this is something that you want to join, Theophilus? That's what he might be asking himself. Are you absolutely sure this scruffy, disorganized carpenter religion the big numbers, they, they all seem to be elsewhere with Roman power or Greek intelligence or Jewish antiquity or religious mystery. There, there are so few of you followers of Jesus, he might say to them. You're all scattered. A lot of you are very unimportant. You can imagine Theophilus saying, you, you, you're sort of asking me to leave the really important kingdoms of the world and join this other kingdom, which is good, but nonetheless it is tiny and weak. What, what good is something if it is so small? Will it, will it really last? So to answer this last objection, this, this last wobble perhaps, Luke brings this discipleship module to a close with a clear appeal. Join something small now, but something that will be huge later. And here today, that is exactly what Jesus is spending his time on, the growth of this kingdom that he has been talking about over the past few months. This whole section has been about distinctive kingdom discipleship, learning what it means to be a discipleship of the kingdom and the king that we've been looking at, with the, the heartache and the difficulty that that brings, 
But here today, we end on this glorious high that this kind of kingdom living, this kind of kingdom discipleship described in these chapters that we've walked through is totally worth it. Because this kingdom is the kingdom that will become enormous, the kingdom that will end all kingdoms, the kingdom that looks weak and frail now but will grow and win. And Jesus does that by presenting the kingdom with two very simple comparisons. Verse 18 of our chapter today. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like. Well, what is it like? Well, Jesus gives us two simple pictures, doesn't he? And we're going to focus on both of them together this morning. And the two pictures he presents as comparisons to his kingdom is the image of the mustard seed and a blob of leaven. Both of them minuscule now, but both very much bigger later. And that brings us to our first point of three this morning, the kingdom now. What does the kingdom look like now as Jesus is speaking? Well, as Jesus speaks, his kingdom is small, isn't it? It's really small. And depending on how you count it, Jesus' kingdom is at best a few hundred people who are sort of following him and listening to him and and are being increasingly convinced by him. Or it's actually just 12 disciples, those who are actually specifically called by him as they identify themselves with him. Or just one person, Jesus himself. And Jesus, he reaches for a comparison and he chooses something everyday and insignificant, like the leaven jar, something that at the time would have been present in every home, in every village, or or, or a tiny, tiny seed. So let's have a look at these two images in detail. First, they're obviously both very small, aren't they? The mustard seed is is a millimetre big. It's a grain of sand in size. You can't really see it. If you sort of have it on your finger, the teeniest wisp of breeze will sort of blow it away, and you will never find it again. It's minute. And leaven, well, what is leaven? Some people think it's yeast. It sort of is, but it isn't yeast per se, rather it's, it's a lump of yeasty dough that's sort of been broken off from a much bigger, larger dough, that, dough that's sort of ready to be made into bread. And it's this tiny lump that's going to be placed in a jar and kept until a new loaf is needed. And then it's drawn out and it's sort of added flour, flour and water is added to it and it's proved and it becomes another whole bit of dough. And just as it's just about to be baked into bread, then another little lump is sort of pulled off and that's the new leaven lump and that's kept and so on and so on, you see? Some people can keep leaven going for years and years, constantly breaking off tiny pieces, feeding it water and flour, constantly keeping it, it raised and, and feeding people. But leaven on itself is just a tiny blob of mush. It sort of fits in your hand. It's nothing significant. It's very unexciting. Not only are these two things small and unexciting, however, they're also entirely useless on their own. In terms of verse 19, you cannot ask a bird, for example, to make a nest in a mustard seed, can you? You can't do that. The RSPB will help you increase habitats for birds in your garden. I know a number of you are properly into this. You can buy all sorts of things to help your birds, bird feeders, food, fat balls, etc. But none of that is any good if you're standing in the middle of a bare field with a mustard seed on the end of your finger. Nothing can hang off it. No no bird can sit in it. No no food can come from it. In fact, all it's good for is just food for the bird, and that's only if it can actually find it. It's so small, you see. The, The mustard seed is totally useless on its own. It's good for neither man nor beast. 
The same with the leaven. Leaven is actually disgusting. I don't know if, you, if any of you actually dealt with bread on an intimate basis. I, um, I remember a trend a few years back when Jen and I first came to Edinburgh, and I think some of you in this room were actually a part of this trend. This, it was a very hipster thing to, to do. Um, I'm very ashamed of it. I'm very sorry. But that, that was sort of making sourdough bread. But then you pass on the leaven lump to someone else, to a friend, and then they make their own bread, and then they pass their leaven lump on, and so on and so on. It went all the way around the church. It was some kind of bizarre hipster party game, and frankly, it was a bit grim, having to sort of farm and feed this sludge every morning. It became like a pet in our house. Have you fed the blob yet? We'd sort of yell at each other, and it's, it's going to die. We, we need to pass it on, and it stinks to high heaven, if any of you have ever done this. It really smells. It's grim. It's useless on its own. I think the sourdough chain ended actually with us. I can't remember if we even <laughs> passed it on. It was awful. It ended up in the bin. You see, the mustard seed, the blob of smelly leaven, totally useless on their own in their initial state. But more than that, look at the verbs that Jesus uses next in these verses. Verse 19. The man took the seed and sowed it in his garden. Something that had to happen to the seed to make it more than what it was. But, but, but the actual word for sow here in the Bible is through. So literally, the man took the seed and he threw it in his garden. That's what we read. That's how they sowed seed back in first century Israel. They didn't have nice pots and hanging baskets where you sort of pressed seeds into them. They just had a furrowed earth, a big field, and seeds were just chucked into them. And so with this seed, this one millimeter mustard seed, once you threw it, you've, sort of, you've lost it, haven't you? You can't find it again. You can't see it. You can't monitor it. You can't mark where it landed. You've just got to wait. It's gone. You can't help it. In fact, you've got no idea where it is. You don't know what's going on until you see the first shoots of the tree beginning to emerge. Likewise, the kingdom of God is like leaven. Note the verb that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, like a tiny ball of leaven hidden in a bigger ball of floury dough. You couldn't distinguish the original leaven from the rest of the dough. It's totally missing. It's gone. Even more so, considering in our passage this morning, it's been hidden, have you noticed, in three measures of flour, verse 21. In Bible equivalents, that's three satyrs of flour. In our money, that's 35 litres of the stuff. It's like Mrs. Crockett next door has gone mad. Like that's all the flour in the village. Stop, Mrs. Crockett, there's too much, you're going mental. Can you see the picture that Jesus is sort of deliberately spinning here? Can you see what Jesus' kingdom is like, Theophilus? The kingdom of God is like a minute seed that is thrown away into a massive field. The kingdom of God is like a tiny blob of leaven that is hidden even more in barrels of flour. You can't see it. Can you see Jesus saying, Theophilus, you're not wrong. The, the kingdom of God is, is really small. And, and not only small, says Jesus, who is sort of doubling down on this analogy, but it's also so treated very perilously, it seems. Almost close to extinction. It's sort of thrown away. It's deliberately hidden, unseen, indistinguishable from all the other things going on in the world. You're not wrong, Theophilus. It's really small. The time of Luke writing this is about 60 to 65 AD. That's sort of 65 years after the birth of Jesus, about 30 years or so after his death. The, the, the kingdom is tiny, small, so small you lose it. You would, you would lose sight of it. 
You can imagine conversations in the villages sort of 30 years after Jesus having walked through them. Oh, yeah, I remember Jesus. I sort of lost sight of that crew that came through. Do you remember Jesus' 12 followers? Well, he died. Yeah, he died. That kingdom he was preaching obviously didn't come to much, seems to have been thrown away. Can you see? This kingdom is so small, it's hidden in the masses of other earthly kingdoms, other religions, sects, preachers, other things that are going on. It seems to crowd it all out. It's there, just at points totally unseen. Seemingly dead without its founder, perhaps. And for Theophilus, he probably has a lot to lose here. His name, the title, and the title that sort of Luke gives him, most excellent Theophilus, it suggests that he's high status, a well-educated Greek with excellent prospects in life, going far, the, the son of the empire, destined for great things. Is he really going to throw his lot in with Jesus? In the, in the startup phase, when it's fragile and unproven, and he stands a lot to lose more than his shirt. Well, Jesus, he acknowledges the small, but the examples he chooses are ones which are small now at the start, but grow into something extraordinary later. That brings us to point two, kingdom growth. Don't be fooled, in other words, says Jesus, by how small and seemingly unseen all this is. There is astonishing growth. There is a dynamic wow factor to seeds and to leaven, isn't there? Both have a properly biological, exponential sense of growth. And Jesus takes that dynamic and he supercharges it with hyperbole and exaggeration. Seeds are small and pathetic. And so are trees, in fact, when they're young. Any one of you who have planted trees. Friends of ours who live around the corner from us, they have an apple tree and a pear tree in uh, their garden. And they are two very, very weak and fragile things. They're, They're two years old. And they produce good fruit, but they cannot actually stand up on their own yet. They haven't been seized for years, but they're so floppy and unstable, they have to be staked to the ground. But if you were to go back in two years' time, they will be the biggest plants in the entire garden. Go back two years after that, and they'll look as established as the house itself. Exponential growth and strength. It's exactly the same with 11, isn't it? Even more so, the way yeast works is to do literal exponential growth. Two micros become four, become eight, 16, 32, 1,024 in minutes, et cetera, et cetera, so on, so on. Fizzes and froths, expands. You come back a few minutes later, you sort of do the bake-off kneel in front of your oven stance, and you see that it's pushing well past the tin. The oven begins to be not quite big enough for it. You see, Jesus uses two tiny, insignificant, everyday things, but things that everybody knows multiply. Small now, bigger later. Things that are designed and built to manifest enormous, exponential, unstoppable, sometimes ridiculous growth. And so when we describe Theophilus' problem, I imagine that a number listening here this morning might identify with that. Either those who don't know Jesus yet, uh, but also for those of us who do. Those of us who are disciples of this kingdom, we can feel that Christianity is very small, weak, insignificant in a much larger world, especially as a small, new, vulnerable church plant in an area that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years on the edge of a city that is exploding with life and meaning and purpose and importance. Even more so when we look at Scotland and the whole of the UK, Both entities are places in the world of the gospel where the kingdom of the Lord Jesus seems to be fracturing and failing and weakening and declining and dying. 
ill, sick, sort of staggering through the ages. Do we really want to be a part of this kingdom? It just doesn't look like very much. But in fact, the truth is, if we'd gone out a bit more, if we ventured beyond our borders, we would actually see a world of astonishing growth. Christianity is the biggest global phenomenon in our world. There are some astonishing statistics which show this to be true, and I think they're worth listening to, and I'm going to share you share some of them to you for a very deliberate purpose. But before I share these statistics with you, and to prevent a good number of you coming up to me and rightly pointing this out to me, yes, we need to be really careful with statistics, not least in counting Christians. It's hard to define a Christian globally on an individual level of each soul. And the numbers I'm going to tell you now sort of come in the context of enormous population growth over the last 100 years. But that being said... The numbers of Christian kingdom growth in the world is staggering. And if someone has sold you the line that Christianity is drawing to a close, into decline, irrelevance, and death, then it is very easy to demonstrate that that is total nonsense. One thing to note on this, I got these stats from an article that took them from Pew Research. So this is just to show my workings. That's a large, internationally recognized, deeply respected, independent, non-partisan, non-religiously affiliated think tank research organization, which takes these numbers very seriously. You can go and check this all out online. I think this is fascinating. But here are a few eye-popping stats for you. In 1910, there were 600 million Christians in the world, and two-thirds of them were in Europe. By 2010, there were 2.18 billion Christians in the world, and only a quarter of them were in Europe, because most of the growth had been in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. And that does come in the context of spectacular population growth across the world, such as humanity has actually never seen before, but the percentage of Christians within that is really steadily consistent. Let's look at conversions. There have been more converts from Islam to Christianity in the 21st century in the last 20 years than at any other period since Islamic history began. Close to hundreds of thousands of converts per year, and those are the ones we know about, despite situations of enormous pressure and threats to those who convert in those contexts. Here's more. In 1910, there were 39 million Christians in the UK. Uh, at the time, that was five times more Christians than in the Philippines. By 2010, there were many more Christians in the UK than there were in 1910. You may not believe that, but that's true. But now there are twice as many as that bigger number in the Philippines. In other words, there are more Christians in the Philippines per head of population than here in the UK, accounting for both numerical growth, conversions, and population growth. Isn't that incredible? In China, there were 2 million Christians in 1910, 4 million in 1949, 67 million in 2010, and estimates of around 100 million today. Here are some percentages. South Korea, 2% Christian in 1945, and 29.3% Christian in 2010. Sub-Saharan Africa was 9% Christian in 1910, 63% Christian in 2010. Christianity has not shrunk in the last 100 years. At least it proves that Christianity has not shrunk by any standards. Even if all those percentages and numbers were halved, the growth of Christianity in the world is astounding, outstripping any other philosophy, thought group, worldview, religion, sect, country, or business on the planet. And think how much more those numbers would have risen had Europe, and the UK in particular, had not abandoned the gospel over the last 100 years. Even though we have, the gospel in the world continues to grow exponentially despite us. 
Isn't that amazing? And we feel small, some of us, because we can see the closing churches and the shrinking denominations in the UK, but if we got out a little bit more, we'd see incredible growth, as much as incredible need. And feeling small is understandable. It's why Jesus is saying all this. It's right to feel the weight of your local area. That's why we're here as a church plant in this area, because we see the extraordinary need of the gospel in this area, in, in Edinburgh, in this part of the world. We want to do something about it. But can you see that Lucas, through the words of Jesus, saying to Theophilus, don't give up on Jesus, on following Jesus. Don't give up on this kingdom because you perceive it to be small, insignificant, and weak. You've seen Jesus up until this point and the power he wields and, and the authority he displays and the might at his fingertips and the freedom he brings to bear on broken people. Look at what he does and be certain, Theophilus, that what Jesus says of this tiny kingdom will come true, that it will dominate the earth. And Jesus says the same thing to us now. Don't give up, Redeemer, on the kingdom, on following this king, on taking the long, hard road to suffering, costly but distinctive kingdom discipleship, just because you perceive it to be small or insignificant, weak, declining. Because it looks like King Jesus is hidden or he's been thrown away. Because that just isn't the reality. This kingdom, this kingdom of freedom that we've walked through over the course of the last few months has only ever had exponential growth since one man, Jesus, decided to get 12 guys to be his disciples. And from that group of 12, there are now 2.18 billion souls belonging to him, not including those who have died and are already with him in glory. Immediate in the West is desperate to say that the, the, the church is dying. And in some respects here, it might be. The Bible, Jesus is desperate to say that across the world, nothing could be further from the truth. This kingdom of incredible growth, even and most especially when the church is decimated, persecuted, butchered, burned, well, history proves it just grows all the more. The privilege we have of being able to stand at the arc of the 21st century, 2,000 years of kingdom growth history behind us. And unlike Theophilus, who had to really trust and believe that what Jesus was saying in, in Luke will be true, we have the privilege of actually knowing that it is true. Seeing with our own eyes that Jesus was right, from one man to 12 to a handful of ladies and gents in an upper room, to the city of Jerusalem, to the region of Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, this kingdom has exploded and there is no stopping it. Even the gates of hell will not bring it down. And how has that happened? Through the simple, basic, normal, day in, day out, seemingly unseen, low-level, distinctive, hard kingdom discipleship living of normal individual Christians. Everything that we've been looking at for the past two months with Jesus on his school to discipleship. You see, you see why these comparisons of kingdom growth are right here at the end of this school of discipleship. It not only encourages us in our discipleship that we are part of something cataclysmically enormous and that we're on the winning side and that's going to get us through, but that, that kingdom discipleship is the means for this kingdom growth. This exponential growth is all down to Jesus, saving and empowering a normal bloke in a normal street, and that normal believer telling their mate about Jesus, who tells his mate, who tells her mum, who mentions it to her husband, who, who tells it to the whole family, who sort of slowly impacts their village, and that has an impact on the wider area, so on, so on, so on. 
Day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, the relentless, unstoppable march of the gospel of the kingdom of freedom. Don't give up, Redeemer. Don't give up, Christian. Rightly feeling small and weak, often thrown away and hidden in the world. See what Jesus has done through normal people throughout the ages, the exponential growth of simple, basic, normal, unimportant, seemingly gospel-distinctive kingdom discipleship living. I promise you, says Jesus, this kingdom would explode from practically nothing. From a tiny one-millimeter seed, there will be an almighty tree. From a tiny batch of smelly, blobby, wet flower, the, the, the entire batch, notice verse 18, will be affected. The whole earth, in other words will rise and prove with kingdom yeast. The kingdom is tiny now, says Jesus, but it will grow unimaginably, but it hasn't ended there. Because the world hasn't yet ended, there is more to come, and that brings us to our last point this morning, the kingdom to come. For the one millimeter seed that the man took and sowed in his garden grew, didn't just become a tree, but it became a tree which the birds of the air made nests in. Now, we all know that's what seeds do. They grow into massive trees. But imagine you were an alien and knew nothing of human biology. You wouldn't connect a seed to a tree if you put them both next to each other in their normal states. From a one-millimeter mustard seed to a six-meter mustard tree, it's 4,000 times growth ratio. And a bird is an enormously heavy thing to a mustard seed, but they can build nests and raise entire families in the tree that comes from a seed only a few years later. Can you see? In fact, leave a mustard tree for long enough, come back in 10 years' time, and you could live in it. Robbie Gifford and Ian Merriman will come round and they'll build a treehouse for you, and your children will live in it, and they'll eat in it, and they'll sleep in it, and they'll play in its massive branches alongside the third, fourth, fifth generation of birds that never left. Can you see that the language here is doing double service? The tree is not just big, the tree is life. For the birds, it's shelter and safety and home. That is what my kingdom is like, says Jesus. This is what it will be um, and for, for everyone, for you, Theophilus. This is what I'm, I'm asking for you to contribute to and to live for on this road to discipleship. It's, it's going to be a kingdom that will bring life and shelter and, and safety and home. And the same is true of the little blob of leaven, isn't it? Hidden inside of, of masses of flour. How does it cope? How does that tiny bit of yeast cope with all that flour? Well, biology is not threatened by space, is it? Biology, nature will always grow to fill the space, and it won't stop until the space runs out. Biology sees expansion potential where we might feel intimidated. And after passing only a little bit of time, Mrs. Crockett, if you remember, is sitting on this increasingly massive blob. She's got so much dough, she needs about 70 people from the village to help her bake it. That's intimidating. There's too much dough, Mrs. Crockett. You're mad. But the yeast, the, the original blob of leaven, it isn't intimidated. It didn't look at the three measures of flour that it's sort of hidden into and go, whoa, hang on. I I'm sorry, but a lump of my size usually only gets about a tenth of this volume of flour. No way, I'm off. I'm going on strike. Picketing at the bread bin. I'm absolutely not getting paid enough to leaven this whole lot of my own. No thanks. It doesn't do that. It, it just grows. Until verse 21, it was all leavened. Every last gram of flour, all risen and ripe and ready for baking. Can you see, it's, it's nature is to grow without question. There's no space too big. There's no amount of flour too much for this tiny leaven to work through. 
And much like the seed turning into the tree, what does that leaven turn that flower into? Well, it turns in from a small blob of smelly yeast to a loaf of sweet-smelling bread. And by Mrs. Crockett's measure, that's about 70 loaves of the stuff. Able to feed and power men, women, children, all ages and stages, keeping the village alive, you see? There's nothing like bread. We might take it for granted. In fact, I think we do, but it's incredible stuff. I remember when I used to work during the summers in Malawi, and we used to take long trips down to Nsanji, to the very south of the country, deep in the Great Rift Valley. It was stinkingly hot, and on one occasion, we'd miscounted the food bags that were brought with us to sustain us on the journey down. And so we sent a group of our team to a local village to buy bread, and we were sitting in the truck for hours waiting for them. We were very, genuinely very hungry, very lethargic spent. We'd not prepared particularly well. When eventually we heard the team coming back with big plastic buckets full of bread, small little round cakey things, and it was like heaven. That The smell of it, the crack of the crust as you bite into it, the sort of soft, warm, sweet centre. I've never appreciated freshly baked bread the way I did that afternoon. There's a reason why it's a staple of nearly every country. It's easy to make. It fills you up. It gives you nutrients. It gives you strength. It, it takes away your hunger. It's versatile, quick to make, tasty, simple. It's incredibly cost-effective. You just need one small dollop of yeast leaven, and you've got everything you need. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and give us today our daily bread. You see the connection? It's the foodstuff of life. It's the foodstuff of the kingdom that is coming. Bread is life. This is what my kingdom is like, says Jesus. It's not just like an exponentially growing microbe. It is so much more than that. It is life. Bread is life. The tree is life. My kingdom is life. And much like the tree housing and giving life and shelter to birds, so bread feeds and strengthens and gives life to humanity. And in the exaggerated scale here, it isn't a loaf, it's a feast, isn't it? Mrs. Crockett has made a feast of bread, a feast of life-giving food to anyone who wants to receive it. That is what my kingdom is like, says Jesus, a life-giving tree grown from a single mustard seed, the life-giving yeast grown from a tiny blob of leaven. Come and follow me, the king of this kingdom, and, and trust me that I'm right about this. It may be tiny now, it may seem small and insignificant where you are, but it will be the great life-giving force to be reckoned with in the earth. I stake my life on it, says Jesus, as he walks on his way to the cross. And this brings us helpfully, as we draw this series to a close, to that passage in Revelation that Moira read for us earlier, where we are given a glimpse from Jesus as to what the very final point of this kingdom looks like in our future, the kingdom that is to come. For in Revelation 21 and 22, we see another tree and another feast. Then the angel showed me the water, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Can you see in the, in the center of Jesus' perfect kingdom in eternity, there is a tree that gives life and food and healing for the nations. That's, that's the image of the birds represented in verse 19 in Luke. That's what that means. The birds nest in that tree. The, the nations nest in this one. Nations will come to shelter under the tree, eating of the food left for God's people. Can you see? 
This is where we leave Jesus' school of discipleship. Peering over the parapet of the cross of history into the realm of the eternal kingdom. The kingdom which, when fully grown, when, when finally consummated, when fully victorious, will not just have birds living in it, but will have every nation and tribe and language and tongue in history represented and feeding off its eternal life-giving food from its life-giving branches. Yes, Theophilus, this is the kingdom that you want to live for. This is the kingdom that you want to put your all into and to suffer for and live distinctively as a discipleship for. And it all started with one man. This Jesus, this king, not much to look at. Small and weak in the eyes of the powerful religious leaders, small and weak in the eyes of the global Roman Empire, not much to look at, not even particularly attractive, just a mustard seed, just a small blob of smelly leaven. But boy, does this kingdom grow through him. And my goodness, what life this kingdom brings. Not just any life, not just abundant life now, but eternal life. Reigning with Jesus, eating at the feast of the supper of the Lamb. And so as we look back on the cost of hard kingdom discipleship, we too, I hope, can say yes. Yes, please, King Jesus. I really want to be a part of that kingdom. I want to be a part of this gospel reality. I want to be a part of this, this church as a part of that gospel reality. I want to be a part of that eternal reality. And I so desperately want to be a part of making this kingdom grow by living and speaking for Jesus through living and speaking a bold, simple, costly, sacrificial, but ultimately glorious life of faithful kingdom distinctive discipleship. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you for what we've looked at today. Thank you so much for your glorious, growing kingdom. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus, who came and, 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 and spoke uh, the, the, the words of the Father, spoke the words of the gospel as he brought the Spirit to bear on many people's lives, as he showed us the way of kingdom discipleship, as he himself went to the cross to die for us so that we may live this life, so that we may be called citizens of this new kingdom. Heavenly Father, I pray that this kingdom will be everything that we would want as a church and as individuals, everything that we would desire and hanker after and yearn for and long for and, and defend and protect and fight for and, and, and speak and live for. Father God, help us as a church to do that, we pray. Help us as individuals to do that, we pray. Help us to be unashamed of the gospel. Help us to, to go into our summer, not, not, not ready to sort of take a rest from this kingdom life, but to be actively living it. In our times away from each other, please protect us. Please help us. Please keep us faithful. Keep us faithful in our Bible reading, in our loving each other, in our prayer life. And help us to want to be more like Jesus every single day. And bring us back together, we pray, more in love with you and more in love with the lost and more in love with the King. And we pray all of these things in King Jesus' name. Amen.